This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Claire Clark, one of the hosts of the channel, and today I'm talking to Anne Pollock, who's a professor of global health and social medicine at King's College London. Dr. Pollock has a wonderful new book, Sickening, Anti-Black Racism and Health Disparities in the United States, which is just out from University of Minnesota Press. And I actually think, um, I think we met many years ago, back when you were a professor at Georgia Tech. But um, anyway, at any rate, it's great to talk to you again. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. And how delightful to think about the paths crossing uh, yet again, as we get the chance to talk about my new book. So um, I wondered if you could start our interview by telling us a little bit about your career up to this point and how did you come to be a professor of global health and social medicine? Sure. So my undergraduate training was in medical sociology at Brandeis, and I was very interested right from the beginning of my studies in these questions about how are the kind of big questions in society also questions that operate in our very own bodies, including in terms of inequality. So really thinking through feminist theory and thinking about how the socially unjust world becomes part of our very physiology, and but with a particular interest in narrative. So always interested in how we tell stories about identity and difference in the ways that we engage with disease categories, as well as medical technologies. And so that was where I was in my undergraduate career. And then when I did my PhD, it was in science, technology, and society at MIT. And that was where I really became interested in heart disease as a research area. And that um, has really stayed with me as well. I think that it's a, a rich terrain that is underexplored. And my PhD became my first book project. It was called Medicating Race, Heart Disease and Durable Preoccupations with Difference. So that kind of dissertation-based book 
came out in 2012 from Duke University Press and looks at the ways in which the heart disease categories and ideas about racial difference in the United States had these kind of intersecting trajectories over the 20th century and into the 21st. And then I, through that work, I came to know a lot of anti-racist medical practitioners who were engaged in pharmaceutical research at the same time that they were engaged in social justice research. And that really made me keenly aware of the ways in which the there was kind of a false choice, I felt like, in a lot of sociology and anthropology on the topics of race and medicine that was saying that we had to somehow choose whether to address problems of the medical and health impacts of racism socially or whether we should engage those medically. And when you look at organizations like the Association of Black Cardiologists, you see that there are many people who are very much engaging in both and are committed to both um, demanding social justice for their patients and in also treating them in the clinic. And this kind of led me on a circuitous path toward understanding post-colonial engagements with pharmaceuticals. And my second book was focused on South Africa and a small drug discovery company that was trying to find new drugs for TB, HIV, and malaria. And they kind of were working through these questions as African scientists who were engaged with international experts trying to develop these novel drugs, really engaged in questions of how does it matter who makes knowledge and where, and is there a potential to make African solutions for African problems? So that book winds up as a bit of a tragedy in the sense that the company that I followed, a company called Atemba, which is Zulu for Hope, it failed. So it closed its doors. And yet there were these really compelling capacity building elements to the project that continued and continue. And so there is also a real kind of ongoing presence of hope in the book too. It's not merely, it's not merely tragic. And so that was my second book. And then my third book, this one is the one that uh, has just come out this summertime and is called Sickening, Anti-Black Racism and Health Disparities in the United States. And on one level, I've been working on this book ever since graduate school. So Mm -hmm. when I uh, was a first year PhD student, was in September 2001, and I heard the calls of the postal workers who, uh, one of the postal workers who would die in the anthrax attacks. I heard the recording of his call on the radio. And for me, that has haunted me um, ever since. So as Black Lives Matter has emerged and as viral videos have become so important in mobilizing outrage against injustice and also uh, broader movements, Um, that recording has really stuck with me. So along the way, as I've been doing these other projects, I've also done kind of side projects of media analyses of what is going on with these moments that really illustrate the kind of crises of racism and health in the United States in the 21st century. And so although I wrote this book 
quite quickly in a sense. I had a fellowship from the American Council of Learned Societies in 2019. In some ways, I've been thinking about this book for a very long time. And it it does, um, it struck me in reading it that it, it seemed like the culmination of, a, of many years of teaching. Um, and to, to learn that it goes all the way back even to your coursework, um, that's not surprising to me because it, uh, it, it sort of crystallizes a lot of really complex material. Um, before we kind of jump into the, the content of the book, um, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about, um, I'm going to borrow a question from another host here on the New Books Network and ask how the pandemic has affected your work. It's been a profound impact, absolutely. So, I mean, on the one hand, the work of an academic is rather consistent um, throughout. And so even as I've been teaching online instead of teaching in person and maintaining my relationships with my international networks online instead of in person, that can seem as if it might be the same thing. And yet it has really profound impacts in terms of how well I'm able to kind of stay in touch, but also the depth of the critical distance. I think that seeing, um, being in the United Kingdom, uh, which has not had a perfect response either to the pandemic, um, but it has had a very different one from the United States in at least some key ways, it has been useful um, for honing that kind of critical perspective even more starkly, I guess, than when I was routinely going back and forth across the Atlantic. So after I finished my PhD, I was a, well, I visited at Rice Anthropology just for one year, and then I taught at Georgia Tech for 10 years. And I have deep ties to activist communities as well as scholarly communities in Atlanta. And yet being um, distant in space, made it so that our conversations became a little bit less of an ongoing one and a little bit more of a moment of critical distance. And then, of course, for the book itself, too, that played out that way as well. So I turned in the first draft of the book manuscript in January 2020. And so it was going under peer review while the world was undergoing so much disruption in so many places. And then I was revising it in light of the reviewer reports in summer 2020. So it was very much a time that was this time out of time that felt like an amazing moment, actually, to encapsulate, you know, really think through what had happened in the 20 years before. And also, I think, you know, to really reflect on the ways in which the normal violences that I track throughout the book were becoming really obvious to many in 2020 in the ways that they Mm -hmm. hadn't before. So obviously many of us have known about these things and have been paying attention for many years, but they've, they've raised in profile. And so that was actually a really good opportunity for me to go through the manuscript and, um, you know, kind of with that awareness um, and then build out a stronger conclusion that would be a forward looking one that would, would really help think through, okay, We've looked through a bunch of cases from the first couple of decades of the 21st century. How is this relevant today and going forward? And how can we use the kind of information as well as the analytical tools to be ready to confront uh, whatever it is that comes next? 
So that's actually one of my next questions is to ask you to elaborate on that and kind of get into it. But before we do that, um, could you first tell us a little bit, tell us, let, let's, I, let's um, lay out some definitions for, for our audience here um, because they, they might be useful. Um, tell us about the meanings of the title um, and then tell us uh, in particular about the word racism and why you're talking about racism rather than race. Sure. So sickening for me is a title that is meant to evoke a couple of different things. So one is, of course, the kind of most literal definition, perhaps, which is the things that are making us sick. So this is the ongoing phenomena that pervade our broader social world in and beyond the medical domain that contribute to differential kind of allocation socially of those things that foster life and foster flourishing, foster wellness, and those things that make it differentially likely that some people will become sick, some people will die prematurely, and so this is this kind of process of sickening. It's also, of course, a, you know, just a kind of in a slang sense, the idea that something is sickening if it's outrageous. And all of the stories that I kind of account for in the book are also outrageous. I do hope that the book will help people to get beyond the doom scroll element of the sickening so that, you know, I think sometimes when we pay attention to all of the horrible things that are going on in the world, we can be left sick in a way that is not productive, but is instead paralyzing. And yet I really hope that the book provides resources for kind of going from that outrage at the injustices that are kind of going on the social media feed or that you read about elsewhere, and then putting those into a context that helps to see the contingency of those structures, opportunities, examples of things that are doing, things that people are doing in order to build a world otherwise. And absolutely the focus throughout the book is on racism in particular. It definitely is not to say that other intersecting modes of inequality are not important. So gender, of course, also sexuality, age, disability, and class is particularly important in the book. And yet I do think that it's important to focus on anti-Black racism in particular in the book because it's just been such an important and fundamental element of the way that health inequalities have been, have been shaped in the United States, especially as well as in other contexts. And so I provide in the book, like, you know, a lot of um, kind of scaffolding for people to think through how racism impacts health. And I draw on the work of Kamara Jones, who is an anti-racist physician and epidemiologist who outlines multiple levels of racism so including institutionalized racism, that includes things like differential access to the goods, services, and opportunities in a society by race. And um, these may not have an identifiable, identifiable perpetrator, um, and they may even be just inaction, right? So just kind of institutionally not providing things that would foster health uh, to particular groups of people. So she has institutionalized racism, and that's where a lot of my focus is. There's also personally mediated racism, which is 
probably what most people think of when they think of racism kind of off the bat. So prejudice and discrimination, where people have different assumptions about people's abilities and motives and intentions, and that that is kind of organized by race. And so Jones, and I think this is important, also highlights that that might be intentional or unintentional. And I think that that's often really important in understanding the ways that healthcare practitioners play a role. Most healthcare practitioners do want the best for all their patients, and yet they still do play really key and problematic roles in continuing and reinforcing health disparities. And then there's also internalized racism. So this is where uh, members of stigmatized groups internalize negative messages about abilities and intrinsic worth. And that's not so much the focus of my own book, but I do think that it's an important thing um, that others might go on to explore further, probably with um, more kind of first-person accounts than this book provides, which is mostly focused on media uh, representations and already accessible accounts. Well, I'm glad you talked about Jones's three levels of racism because I was going to ask you to explain those before we moved on to the next question, but you you did it for us, so um, thank you. Let's. I so the book has um, the book has six chapters, and the, each chapter is a case study, um, a kind of case study, um, and the case studies are all drawn from the 20th century. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that. Why, why do we sort of start immediately post-September 11th and then um, it really moves all the way up to, to the very, very recent um, events um, in the conclusion? You put each of these cases sort of in conversation with um, events that are, are happening, I'm guessing, as you're, as you're revising the book in 2020. Absolutely. So, yeah, they're all events from the 21st century, and I feel like this is really important. And this absolutely is um, informed by my work in teaching. So I used to, at Georgia Tech, I would teach these classes in biomedicine and culture and science, technology, and race. And I found that the way that we often teach about racism and health is that we tell it chronologically. So we talk first about slavery, colonialism, and then we kind of move through um, up to the present day. And I think that this approach is not actually very successful in engaging students for multiple reasons. So for one thing, it starts on this macro level that young people just have a hard time getting their heads around. It's remote from their experiences. It's um, remote in time. And it can even foster among some students a sense of, oh, wow, I sure I'm glad I'm not from the past when things were bad. And mm-hmm. now I'm just where things are better. And so, you know, so that's, that's cool. And as if it happens almost naturally. And so I think that using cases that are all from our students' own lifetimes, um, although 2001 will soon, will soon age out, um, I'll be teaching <laughs> first year students who were not yet alive in 2001 very soon. Um, but, but, you know, as we go through 2005 and, and through the rest, you know, they're all uh, kind of within the broad living memory of our students. It is um, an accessible way to reach them. And all of the phenomena are just much more kind of relatable to them. Like things that I talk about may have happened to them or to people they know, people in their broader communities. 
Um, they've read about them in their ongoing lives before coming to a university classroom. And so that means that when I then go back and kind of loop back, so kind of talk about a case from the 21st century, loop back and talk about the historical kind of roots of that and some some legacies that are lived through that ongoing inequality, um, the students are already kind of in the story, right? They're already engaged. They're already brought in. And then it just situates the story really differently. And I think it's also important for, um, for all of us, so whether we're in the classroom or otherwise, to remember that sometimes, you know, and Ruha Benjamin, for example, has really mm -hmm. highlighted this a lot in her work about sometimes this kind of question of distrust of medicine is articulated as if it is just a legacy of a horrific past. But if we look at contemporary cases, we can see that that distrust is founded and grounded in institutions that are untrustworthy. And so what we really need to do is to, you know, really make our institutions more trustworthy and kind of put the focus there. And the ongoing um, reinforcement of inequality, reinvention, reentrenchment, rather than, um, you know, I think it, it can be a little bit complacent to talk about other people, other times, other places. Sure. So um, I wondered if you could, what are some of the case studies? I wondered if you could give our listeners a sense of the kinds of things that the book covers. Sure. So as you mentioned um, already, the first case, or I suppose I mentioned, the first mm -hmm. case is about the deaths of the Black postal workers in the 2001 anthrax attacks. And this case is kind of an amazing one to me in the sense that a lot of people actually don't remember this event. Um, and I think it's partly because it just happened so soon after the kind of much larger scale events of September 11th, 2001. So it happened in October, so now 20 years ago. Um, and they, uh, so in this case, we have um, these postal workers who were exposed to anthrax that was sent through the mail directed at media institutions and at the Capitol. And this case looks at, it's really anchored in a 911 call that one of the two postal workers made in which he actually describes his attempts to get medical care and the ways in which he's thwarted and his attempts to get information from his governmental employers and the way that those are thwarted. And as I mentioned, it's a really haunting kind of 911 call because we listen to it already knowing the very tragic outcome. The second mm -hmm. chapter looks at a former widely known case, which is Hurricane Katrina, but it takes a slightly unusual um, route in. So looking at chronic disease in particular. So as I mentioned, heart disease has long been an interest of mine. And this chapter looks at, okay, how is it that when you have a natural disaster, so archetypally in global health, you would think, okay, let's ex we would expect uh, outbreaks of infectious disease. But here we saw that after the initial crisis of the storm, the real impact of Katrina was born in morbidity and mortality due to chronic disease, so heart disease and diabetes especially. And so I look through the ways here, especially that pharmaceutical flows were disrupted, both acutely and uh, more long-term, in order to look at how that played out. And so the kind of broader ways in which the failure 
to extend full citizenship and health to the survivors of Katrina was also um, contributing to this chronic uh, disease increase. The third case is about mass incarceration, and it looks at the suspended sentences of the Scott sisters. So this, again, is one that some people are aware of, others aren't. This is a case in which two sisters were serving double life sentences in a Mississippi prison for a trivial crime, and they were released on suspended sentences dependent on one sister donating her kidney to the other. Now, this chapter is really engaged with questions of bioethics and the ways in which the kind of bioethics of the event should not be separated from the bioethics of the uneventful. And that is also a really important element of the next chapter about the Flint water crisis. So this too, very widely known case, but here again, I take a small element within it. So looking at the ways in which General Motors machines were protected. So as soon as the water source was changed, um, the General Motors plant, the people who ran the GM plant noticed that, their, um, that the new water was corroding the machinery and successfully lobbied for a return to the previous water source before the damage was permanent. Whereas people also noticed problems with the water and faced a much harder road to get that addressed. And so how is it that machines are ahead of line, ahead in the line um, for safe water ahead of people? And then um, the fifth chapter looks at police brutality and enforcing segregation at a pool party. So this one takes on um, the case that was a viral video as well of um, the Jajaria Becton case in McKinney, Texas. Uh, and many people may remember it. So this was when there was a young girl in a bikini who was pinned down by a uh, police officer in full uniform. And it really rendered really stark the ways in which police brutality is a tool that reinforces residential segregation in ways that both cause harm of the police brutality itself, but also create situations in which our very communities have are stressful situations for many and are also places in which not everyone has access to leisure and to flourishing. And then the last chapter, the last substantive chapter is about Serena Williams' birth story. So this is when um, Serena Williams was giving birth. She had life-threatening complications. And even she, as a you know, kind of global superstar and real expert in her body, um, had a difficult time getting taken seriously and getting listened to when, um, when she was facing these life-threatening uh, complications. And so she herself has articulated this in reproductive justice terms as being something that really illustrates the challenges that Black women in the U.S. face in getting adequate care. And then, as you've mentioned, the conclusion works through all of the chapters in light of the pandemic. And so looking at the ways in which things like failure to protect essential workers and the real inequalities of living in segregated neighborhoods with differential access to resources um, and many, many other elements, right? And of course, police brutality being so prominent in summer 2020 as well. The way that all of these kind of um, elements that have come together in the book were also um, happening in 2020 and are ongoing. 
And so you talk about the case studies um, all are all about health, not necessarily medicine mm-hmm. and the way that it's it's narrowly defined. Um, could you could you say a little bit about um, what is you're an, an STS scholar, science and technology studies scholar? Um, what 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 is that? Some of our listeners <laughs> might not know. And then why do you um, explain the approach that you use to looking at these different case studies as being predominantly humanistic? Yeah, so science, technology, and society, or science and technology studies, is an interdisciplinary field that broadly looks at how science and technology shape society and how society shapes science and technology. And in this book, the science and technology is mostly pretty low tech, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, yes, there are medical technologies, so including Cipro that was not provided to the postal workers and other pharmaceuticals that are not provided after Hurricane Katrina. Um, so these are medical technologies. But there's also many other technologies ranging from traditional media to social media, swimming pools, Um, are very kind of urban infrastructures. So these are all um, technologies as well. And science is not only what is made in labs, the kind of knowledge that is made in labs, but also how we come to know the world, right? So these kinds of really much broader epistemological questions. And one of the things that is common in STS is to really look at the emergent processes of knowledge and of science and technology. So not kind of saying, um, oh, because this was known in science or because this technology existed, therefore this social thing happened, but to look at the ways that those are co-constructed. So how we know the world and the world as it is are constantly changing in relationship to each other. And I think this is also an important thing with sickening as a title, I mean, all my titles actually are present progressives. So my first book is Medicating Race. My second book is Synthesizing Hope. And then this one is Sickening and really attentive to the ways in which the kind of social world is constantly being created through um, both material processes and semiotic processes. So, you know, if you think about kind of classic STS uh, thinkers who are also widely Um, look to in other fields. So like Donna Haraway, for example, really interested in material semiotic uh, questions. That is kind of where where this is coming from. It is, though, uh, conventional in STS. Most STS is broadly um, social science in the sense that it does qualitative research. So, and I have myself done a lot of qualitative research. So engaging ethnographically, with a lab or with a medical context, for example, would be um, quite conventional. Um, Quantitative approaches are also sometimes used, less so in SDS, but very important in the literature of health disparities. Um, But this book is predominantly interpretive in its method. So I don't do any novel interviews. Um, I don't uh, do any kind of I don't go to any novel archives even. I just, you know, the the information is kind of out there. And I think my goal with this book is just to encourage folks to sit a little bit longer with the stories, um, to dig a little bit deeper into them, um, rather than kind of do a more traditional, maybe, um, anthropology or STS approach of doing interviews and, you know, or maybe focus groups or, you know, some other kind of approach that might get to 
um, generating novel qualitative data. And there's a bunch of reasons for that. I mean, I think one is that, you know, as, again, as a teacher, I often have students who want to have, um, you know, who want to write their stories. Uh, they want to write their own studies about suffering. And yet, um, the way that they want to do that is to talk to suffering people and say, please tell me the story of your suffering. Now, sometimes mm -hmm. that is really important. Um, that's an important part of witnessing. And often that can uncover stories that are not widely known. But I think in, it often is the case that the students that I'm working with want to tell a story that's already been told and that they're asking suffering people to tell that story, not for the benefit of suffering people, but for the benefit of the researcher. And Nassim Parvin has um, you know, really explored this beautifully in the ways that these, these stories get commodified in the academic infrastructure. And so, so I specifically forswear that in this particular book. Doesn't mean I won't do qualitative research in the future, but, mm -hmm. um, but I think that this, uh, it felt important to do this as just an interpretive, uh, interpretive approach and very much humanistic. So funded by the ACLS, American Council of Learned Society. So really at that kind of, in that kind of vein. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Well, I'd love to talk a little bit about the style of these chapters. Um, <clears throat> I have actually um, used your the article that appeared in Science, Technology, and Human Values about the Scott sisters that you wrote, and I've used that article as the basis for a fairly writing up a fairly traditional bioethics case study um, oh, wow. to discuss in a in a fairly traditional format. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how the article um, and the way, you know, that article might get repackaged in, say, a case study where you want to engage students in talking about the, the various bioethical principles, how that looks different from the way that you've presented this case in, in Sickening. Yeah, so that's the only case that I've actually previously published. And I think the way that it's different is pretty revealing, actually, to the writing approach of the book itself. So the um, in the book, I really try to lead with the story um, in order to be as accessible as possible to students and also to general readers um, and to really put the kind of theoretical debates toward the end. And so, I mean, I am committed to the theoretical debates. I'm very interested in these questions of biological citizenship and how do we understand how biological citizenship operates and how can we understand bioethics that has been so focused on individual level questions as being relevant to broader social questions. And I do care deeply about that. But I put all of those things throughout the book and each chapter, I put them toward the end of the chapter. 
um, where, and that's where, you know, as, as teachers, we know that's where the, the more motivated students will get all the way to the end. The more motivated <laughs> students will, will kind of get there. And yet we won't alienate the rest of the students by kind of leading with that. Um, because like there are 0% of undergraduate students who go into a class saying, you know, the reason I'm taking this class is because I really want to understand how biological citizenship operates in, you know, <laughs> like that is just not, that's not where they're coming from. That's not where they're coming from. Right. So, um, so that's why I've kind of structured each chapter in that way, really leading with um, an accessible narrative um, that's meant to draw those students in, building out to broader structural issues, and putting um, the kind of more erudite uh, theory, keeping it light, um, and really do, I do try to explain it. So, you know, your motivated upper-level undergraduates can absolutely get it, um, or, you know, college-educated readers who are, um, or even less, uh, if they're very knowledgeable about this information, less educated readers than that. I try to put, um, you know, those things at the end of the chapter so that they don't get too bogged down. This is a book that um, struck me as a kind of, and so I don't usually ask, what is your, what, how do you see, imagine your book being used? That's not normally a question that I ask um, because, you know, most authors just want to see it read. But this book to me just um, seemed, it, it asks, it, it really asks the reader, how are you going to use this, it seems. And so I was really thinking a lot as I was reading about how could each of these chapters and cases be used in an undergraduate classroom, in a graduate classroom, in our correspondence. Um, before this interview, you talked about sort of imagining the book as being useful, useful in, acad in activist circles. Um, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how you see the book being picked up. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely wanted to think about that unusually, right? So unlike my first two books, uh, which I was following very much that practice that you talk about, mm -hmm. of, okay, I wanted to get out, I needed, I needed tenure, I needed to kind of set my agenda as an intellectual uh, with my first book. Um, my second book is a very, um, you know, empirically driven uh, kind of case that is not going to be of very wide interest, right? I mean, not that many people are deeply interested in questions of pharmaceutical science at that level of detail. Um, whereas this one, I feel like because the questions are of broader interest um, and because I really do want it to be useful in the classroom, I thought right from the beginning about, okay, how can it be used? How can it be used in diverse ways? And so one thing that I do um, is to really try to, I think that it can be used either as a whole or in parts. So I imagine that um, many people will use just one chapter if they're teaching about something else. So in a chapter that is about, in, in a class that is about environmental racism or about environmental justice more broadly, you know, they might just use just the Flint water crisis chapter, mm -hmm. right? Um, or similarly, I could imagine a chapter, a, a, class that is about mass incarceration um, and the broader impacts of mass incarceration, or maybe an abolitionist class um, that might use um, just the chapter about the Scott sisters, a chapter on social media that might just use the police brutality case. Um, so, you know, that I've tried to make them so that they are quite accessible on their own as it is. Mm -hmm. um, but I also hope um, that it will be picked up in classes 
and read as a whole as well. So in an undergraduate context, that would mean, you know, a little bit at a time. The chapters aren't too long. Um, so, you know, they can be used in an undergraduate classroom. I just can't stand it when I have a book that I love and the chapters are just too long for me to be able to <laughs> assign to the students and share them, right? So I, you know, they're short enough that you can use them in an undergraduate classroom, kind of depending on the level, either one chapter at a time or two at a time. Um, and then students can then layer the knowledge, right? So looking at, okay, how does how do things within medical care happen? How about occupational elements? How about residential segregation? How about um, you know these kind of diverse phenomena? How do they come together? Also attentive to resistances, also attentive to some kind of historical legacies and theoretical contours kind of throughout. And I think that that'll pay off um, for students and for. A graduate class, I would imagine that they would be all read at once, right? So it's a pretty short book, um, so just about 70,000 words. Um, and so, you know, they could. it would be kind of a treat for them. Um, it could be a book that is uh, toward the end of the term um, when folks are getting a bit tired and wanting something maybe a little bit more accessible. They can read the 145 pages and really think through, okay, you know, okay, how how do all of these different elements come together? And I could imagine it being in a class that was in STS or on um, health inequalities or, you know, there's kind of diverse classes. I would also note that there are, I would think that it would also be useful for medical students too or mm -hmm. for other health students. So, you know, which we don't kind of always think about in terms of, in some ways, they're a lot more like undergraduates than like postgraduates, even though, um, you know, they're kind of postgraduate age and it is postgraduate, but in professional schools, right, um, mm -hmm. as a way, I think sometimes the gap between the way that they're taught medical ethics, for example, um, and their day-to-day -day kind of work in medicine is so great. And so I think that, you know, I'm, I'm trying to make it be, again, a bit of a link similar to the way that it is for the undergrads of grounding it in concrete experience and familiar stories and then going, you know, kind of big and structural. Um, and then I hope that, I mean, I did actually have several colleagues um, read the book in draft. So when I um, was, so I sent it off for peer review. And then at the same time, I had um, friends and colleagues teaching with the text. And that was really helpful, actually, in um, having an opportunity to kind of rehone in light of what they said um, and the feedback that their students had. And so, so I really appreciate, um, I really appreciate that. I guess, especially um, Natalie Valdez at uh, Wellesley, at Wellesley, she uh, taught it and then had me visit. And it was right when the students had um, gone home um, for lockdown. And so I was talking to them that first week and it was really a um, useful opportunity to to talk through it. And they read the whole manuscript. I mean, so as upper level undergraduate students at Wellesley and, and found it useful and accessible. Uh, and yet their conversation also helped me to think through how to hone it. That's wonderful. So these are, are um, tested teaching materials and classes um, other than yours. That's, yes. that's really, yeah, wonderful. Um, I've got just a couple more questions before we get to our traditional final question. Um, the, the next one is one thing that struck me about the book was the way that you wove media into um, each of the chapters. And it, it seemed to me that um, in thinking about teaching the book, that each of these cases would be cases that 
could almost should be paired with um, video clips, audio clips, um, that there are some kind of primary source material that you're asking students to get into. Um, and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about um, the kinds of texts that you might assign along with each of the cases. Yeah, so I think there's more than one answer to that. I mean, so on one level, there are really classic video compilations. So um, there's a series, Unnatural Causes, um, which was made by PBS several years ago now. My favorite episode of it is called When the Bow Breaks, and it has this, it's a really kind of compelling 20-something minute, um, so it works well in the classroom, um, video that explains why it is that class alone doesn't explain the um, disparities in maternal and infant morbidity and mortality in the United States. And so, you know, so those are really great resources and there's lots mm -hmm. of those. But at the same time, I mean, I think that it's also important to be nimble um, and always be incorporating new media um, and I have often encouraged students to bring things in as well. So a kind of go-to assignment that I often used at Georgia Tech, for example, was that each day um, in class, students would have to, a particular students would be um, kind of designated for that day to bring in media clips that, per, that they say pertain to the reading. And so they would have to, you know, explain what did the reading say? How is this media clip that they brought in relevant to that? Um, and then that would foster kind of a broader discussion. And so, you know, kind of that's part of kind of waking students up to the ways in which their media saturated environments are, you know, amenable to the same analytical tools that they're often using in our classrooms. Um, and I guess the other thing I would say to that is that I think that there's a lot of great work going on in media analysis that could well be paired with this too. So, I mean, Ruha Benjamin being one that I've mentioned already, but her mm -hmm. book, Race After Technology, I think is, um, you know, really usefully looking at some of the same issues in quite a different um, set of domains. Um, and so even though she also shares in much of her work an interest in health, that I have, and we've known each other for many years, and comment as she provided, you may have noticed she blurbed the book, and mm -hmm. you know we comment in each other's manuscripts and so on. Um, and yet the questions of algorithm, algorithmic um, inequalities that she's highlighting are um, you know, kind of a different and complementary set. And so I think that if you would look at those kinds of things together, then, um, then the students really get a deeper, deeper analysis. So this, um, this does bring us right up to my final question, which is the book kind of culminates in the, in the conclusion with an assignment that you use that you call the sickening assignment. And I, I wondered if you could describe that for our listeners. Yeah, sure. So this is um, a variation of an assignment that I've myself taken um, in class with Joe Dumit, uh, who was one of my uh, advisors of my PhD who himself is a student of Donna Haraway. And so this is kind of a version of her assignment. And, you know, so these are all, um, you know, kind of uh, iterations of each other. Um, and then I've modified it along the way to suit kind of my purposes. So basically the way the sickening assignment works is it's just a template for analysis for students. And so 
it asks them to start out by mapping the terrain um, that they're looking at of a particular case. So kind of defining the case by finding a micro scale. And so often that's the place where it starts, right? So that would be something like the General Motors plant um, getting the clean water when the people didn't or the 911 call of the postal worker. So that's a micro scale. But then thinking about, okay, what is the meso scale in which that is happening? So what is the neighborhood or the city or the region? How does that matter? Who's around as a participant or a bystander? And then also a macro scale. So how is this about kind of a moment in U.S. history? Um, how is it situating? How is it situated in broader phenomena of racialized inequality? So, so you kind of start out by kind of creating this micro, meso, macro model, and then informing the account by reading. So reading media closely, um, also reading materials from activist organizations and reading relevant scholarship. And so part of that reading of relevant scholarship, I, I'll come back to in a second, about making sure that you also read work by Black scholars in particular, um, that that is included within the domain that you define as relevant scholarship. And then the next step is to enrich the analytical frame by adding layers of analysis. So this is kind of a checklist for people, but it's just a spur, um, you know, to kind of think about additional elements that don't jump to mind right away. So paying attention to history, to infrastructure, technology, economic context, citizenship claims, intersections, voice, knowledge, and power. And so by kind of working through those, it helps uh, to illuminate extra at levels at which things are happening. And then of course, writing the account. So, and there's a few caveats within there. So one is to remember the humanity. So I think sometimes um, there's a problem with this current contemporary landscape of outrage where the people whose stories are being told kind of get paved over um, for the purpose of a really um, scathing point. And even though the system is brutal, I think it's really important that our treatment of the subjects that are, you know, we're discussing in the system are not themselves also brutal. And then at the same time, though, remember social justice, because I think sometimes people get so into the minutia of the stories that they forget to, you know, really remember that the point here um, is to call the systems into account. So not just to, and I think this is a big problem with a lot of STS work, not just to kind of um, get mired in the, oh, how fascinating it is, um, how complicated the system is, but really to remember then to, okay, then come up for air and say, okay, here is the, the social justice demand. And then as writing, as you, the students are writing, to be sure uh, to cite Black women. So this is a hashtag and it's also a movement. And I think that, um, you know, this is, I think too rarely do we talk to our students um, at an undergraduate level about citational politics. I think we normally leave that for a later stage in their education. And yet, I think that it is so important that it's there at the foundation. So questions about who is expert um, versus who is just kind of the story about um, are really fundamental 
to the kind of epistemological violence that happens um, through so much scholarly writing. And I think is also something that alienates a lot of students. And so they think, okay, well, I'm not interested in that. Um, that's not, um, you know, kind of an inclusive domain. And so I think that, you know, really talking with students about making sure that their own citational practices are um, what they should be um, is a great uh, kind of it's an eye-opening thing um, for undergraduate students and actually even for postgraduate students sometimes they just haven't paid attention. Uh Um, And then also, um, you know, it's just a, it's a useful kind of tool to always, to always, for us always to be using too. So even though these are four different steps, so this kind of working through the scales and then informing the account and enriching the analysis and writing, obviously they're iterative, right? So once you've done it once through, then you get a case that is written to one level of depth. But then if you go through it again and again and again, then you can get a really rich um, set of stories. And indeed, that's one of my favorite things about teaching with case studies is that I'll often have students come back to me with a level of enrichment of analysis that I hadn't realized either. So, you know, that I think is what... um, what can be really rewarding is when you see, you know, that, okay, they're, um, they're really generating something that feels like a fresh insight that gives me fresh purchase um, on mm-hmm. the situation that I'm trying to understand. Well, it's a wonderful assignment and um, a wonderful book, very usable in a variety of contexts. Um, this does bring us to our, our traditional final question, which is, what's next? What are you working on now? Yeah, that is a big question. Look, this I maybe this is another element of that um, pandemic impacts that I um, I think you know right now I'm I'm stuck in the small. I don't know if I if I hadn't um, turned in this book before the pandemic, I don't know how long it would have taken me to finish it um, mm-hmm. because you know I feel like I've got so many exciting projects that are small right now. So including this race in biomedicine beyond the lab, interdisciplinary international project that I'm working on, some projects around racism and health and capacity building in that research area here in the UK where I live, um, smaller projects around pharmaceutical regulation and the ways that these um, reinforce social injustice, but nothing big, nothing big right now. Um, that's-, that's, feeling, that's feeling harder in this moment than it's felt uh, for me in the first you know, 15 years, I guess, of my, of my post-PhD career. So, so I'm looking forward to kind of getting my feet under me a little bit um, and, and welcoming inspiration for next larger projects. That's where I am too. Um, one, one little project at a time, one little step mm. at a time, just sort of thinking small. It's good to know I'm not alone. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think, I mean, for me, I'm also very involved in editing. Um, So I'm an editor at Catalyst Feminism Theory Technoscience, which is one journal, and then also at BioSocieties. And I do a ton of peer review of book manuscripts, as well as of journal manuscripts as well. And so, and for me, I actually really value that work too of, um, I mean, on one level, it's a smaller project, right? So you know, kind of reviewing somebody mm-hmm. else's work is a, is a discrete thing, which I can tick off the to-do list. Mm-hmm. But it's also important, I think, for, for fostering the larger social um, and scholarly community that I want to be a part of. And I think that I, I really do have a faith and confidence um, that by really 
cultivating that and being part of that, um, I will be in good stead for the next larger thing down the line. Well, wonderful. Well, um, big or small, I will look forward to your future work, Anne, and I want to thank you again for taking the time to come and share your work with us. Thanks so much.